Welcome to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. I'm Sophie, your host for today, and today we'll be discussing the um, amazing topic of leadership cycles. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Now, I've got three interesting questions from the participants I have with me. But before we get into the crux of the conversation, let's introduce the panel. So, David, starting with you, I'd love to know what who you are, what you do, and what your passion is. Yeah, uh, I'm David Erickson. Uh, I've been a product person for almost uh, 20 years, uh, working mainly in uh, product and tech area uh, as a product leader for the last uh, 10 years, uh, mainly in sort of product uh, as a product director and CPO and CTO kind of roles, mostly in the data analytics industries. And then the last couple of years in the music tech. So I, I currently work for a company called Epidemic Sound. We, our mission is to soundtrack the world. Uh, we we uh, provide uh, royalty-free music and sounds to storytellers out there. Uh, a lot of YouTubers, media and TV companies, and our music is uh, being uh, heard uh, around 1.5 billion times a day on YouTube, for instance, and it's kind of uh, uh, produces the sounds for storytellers, uh, for YouTubers and media companies and so forth. And my role at uh, Epidemic is a, a product director, working with the, our artists and track data and systems around that. So Epidemic is much like Spotify, but uh, focusing on production music. Ah, nice. uh, yeah. So that's me and sort of my passions in life is uh, uh, to a large extent product and tech and innovation around this. Uh, and uh, also, of course, music. And I have a bit of a background as a musician myself. So then because of that, it's a bit of a nice fit for me and working at epidemic oh lovely yeah it's nice to kind of get the uh, crossover with something you like as a hobby as a passion and then get paid to, to do stuff related to it as your job as well brilliant thank you david and mauro will come over to you for your introduction yes uh, hi everyone my name is uh, mauro bagnato I'm Italian, uh, 47 years old, actually from the south of Italy, and I, I moved to Sweden almost 10 years ago, but I'm pleased to ask me, how is my Swedish? Because the answer will be very embarrassing. Uh, from a professional perspective, I started as a software engineer and then spent all my professional life in tech. Uh, first half, uh, more technical, the over technical roles, and then the second half, more about leading big or small tech organization. I've worked in different industry, in the telco industry when I was at Ericsson, gaming and gambling when I was at Canby, and recently in the health tech industry where I was working at the Cree. Uh, but then one year ago, almost a year ago, uh, I decided to make a big change in my career, so I quit my job 
And together with two awesome former colleagues at Cree, we decided to start our own company, which is called the Forescale Ventures. And then what we do is basically uh, we do some consulting for scale-ups and uh, big companies. We do some investment and advising for uh, startups in the health tech sector, uh, mainly focusing on femtech companies. And we also do some uh, internal projects. And then we are soon launching our uh, first the brand in the uh, women's health space, which is called the Womanly. So this is happening very soon. Uh, Thinking about my passion as the almost an Italian, I'm very passionate about food and sports in general, but not football. I've been a lot into uh, CrossFit, uh, but then recently, unfortunately, I, I got injured. So I need to lean uh, towards some more easy and soft uh, sports, unfortunately. So this is me. Oh, nice. No, thank you for that. It sounds like, yeah, you've got a lot of good things going on. And finally, last but not least, Avni will come over to you for your introduction. Yes, thank you. My name is Avni and I'm Chief Executive Officer for ETI Interior. Uh, we are an IT consultancy company based in Stockholm. And we have a bit of a niche within mobile application developer. So we have uh, brilliant engineers, both in Android and iOS. Uh, which work with amazing brands within uh, Sweden and Germany and uh, whole Europe. Um, and we have a team which is quite cross-functional and uh, from different parts of the world working together, uh, developing mobile apps uh, in fashion domains, banks and uh, insurance. Uh, I personally, I come from a technical background. Uh, I have 11 years of experience in tech. And uh, before I joined PT Agenture and as a CEO, I was working as the head of IT for Totem, uh, which is a fashion brand. And uh, my main role was to actually build their tech team and uh, uh, build a core uh, back-end and front-end engineering team and uh, leading a lot of uh, innovative projects within the company. Uh, before that, I was working as a solutions architect for Acne Studios uh, for about four years and a half, uh, where I was working a lot within whole uh, IT infrastructure of the company and integrations and uh, IT landscape. Uh, and lastly, uh, eight years ago, I moved to Sweden uh, and uh, I joined Scania, which was my first assignment as an architect, uh, where I was working a lot with like cross-functional teams and um, different integrations within designs and development. Yeah. And for my passion, I love fashion. Uh, I actually wanted to be a fashion designer. so. I found the closest I could <laughs> working with the fashion brands and um, I like to design a lot and uh, architecture really fascinates me, uh, especially within e-commerce and uh, ERP systems and CRM. So, yeah. Oh, lovely. Now, thank you all for those introductions. I think we've got a real good mix of experiences, kind of seniority, kind of at different um, companies and industries as well. So really good opinions I'm expecting from from the topics we've got lined up so the the only thing now to to do is get into it and see um how we'll explore the the podcast topic of leadership cycles now before this podcast we um, as a group decided on the topics we would discuss and David will come over to yours first which is how do you manage the balance between team autonomy and alignment as the company scales. 
So give us more about your your understanding and and reasons for this. Yeah. So so a bit of uh, a bit of a background to my uh, question. So you know, as we know, like agile in tech development has been around for like uh, twenty five years at least. And it's been like a de facto approach, I would say. I mean, the last 10 to 15 years, uh, or even in like sort of old school companies as well, larger ones. And so, I mean, 20 plus years ago, sort of the waterfall approach with all its sort of requirements and, and planning and, and, and so forth, it became a bit of a problem, uh, as we all know, or at least we who were there at the time. And it was like uh, uh, the world was changing faster and technology became much more of a core capability and, and it was changing uh, faster in itself. Uh, and there was an even stronger focus on user and user needs. And, and sort of with the new development, a new generation of developers, product managers who are using internet technologies and developed uh, much faster and came from the startup world. And uh, it was more important to move fast and scale fast and fail fast and, and finding the business model along the way. Uh, so that was becoming more commonplace and ad adhering to the agile manifesto and keeping team autonomy uh, made a lot of sense just because it was typically sort of smaller teams. And, and even with larger companies, uh, being agile now is, is uh, very important, of course. Uh, and having autonomous product teams that can make, you know, take their own decisions and, and collaborate horizontally instead of just in a hierarchy is also important for moving fast and, and be close to changing uh, user needs. Uh, but, but large companies um, mostly have a bit of a waterfall approach in, in how it operates, you know, the operating model with yearly budgets and, and P&Ls and reporting and so forth, uh, you know, quarterly and monthly uh, and, and large uh, Large customers quite often, uh, at least in, in large B2B companies, they, you know, they make plans months or years in advance and, and need to have a bit of a, you know, foresight on, on where things are heading. Uh, and this could be a bit of a cha challenge. Uh, so, so, and if the product teams are autonomous, too autonomous, uh, they might end up being uncoordinated uh, and, and only prioritize their own mission and, and forget about sort of dependencies to one another and the need of, of of planning, uh, and and of course this could be managed by setting good cross organizational OKRs and have other mechanisms in place. Uh, but it's still a, a challenge as a company scales and grow bigger uh, with more complicated platforms and inter interdependency. Uh, there is an increasing need of alignment and planning, uh, even if you try to be very agile. So it's a bit of a fact of life that you cannot be fully. 100% autonomous and have small independent, you know, uh, autonomous uh, product teams um, and be fully aligned at the same time. It's always a trade-off, a balance. So my question here to the panel to discuss is like, how do you as leaders balance between the need of team autonomy and the need of alignment as the company scales? Uh, personally, I think there's measures to take both on the strategic, tactical, and operational level, I mean, putting cadence in place and, and processes, um, because that will kind of uh, enable the teams to be autonomous uh, and, uh, you know, work freely within this cadence. Um, but, uh, and also I think it's important to acknowledge the trade-off uh, and address the, the issues. 
uh, on all levels. Uh, and sometimes be prepared to sacrifice some team autonomy uh, for the greater good of alignment, and sometimes vice versa. Uh, you have to sacrifice a bit of the the alignment in order to have sort of independent product teams working on their mission and being a bit more agile. So my question is like, how do you, uh, how have you experienced going from sort of smaller autonomous teams uh, to uh, try to implement more alignment between the teams, uh, especially important, obviously, as the company scales? I think just taking from my experience uh, as a team leader or manager, setting up global goals and micro goals is very important uh, and having people accountable for uh, for those goals uh, and having teams in a wider audience being clear about who's working on what and who's responsible for what deliveries and who has what dependencies. I think that kind of communication across cross-functional uh, teams, it is quite important, especially when a company is you know, scaling up or uh, starting to change their strategy or direction a little bit and, you know, uh, growing. Yeah, I. This is a super interesting topic, of course. And uh, as you mentioned before, there are those kind of apparent extremes, because on one end you have autonomy, and then if you just go for autonomous teams, that and you mind that point, end up into chaos, right? But then on the other hand, if you only go for uh, alignment, then you might end up in uh, uh, conformity, and then you that. Will, will lead to suboptimal solutions. So you need to get the most and the best out of these two different words. Uh, for me, the solution or what I always try to do is to actually align on high-level things. So it's to frame the question, to frame the context in a way that if you are aligned on things like why we are here, which are the which is the direction, which are the goals, which is the purpose, which is the vision, but also how we work together, then within this boundary, within this context, you can give teams enough autonomy to make their own decision. Just to make it super concrete, I don't know if that happened to you, but then I found myself in a situation where, for example, a team uh, came up saying something like, you know what, I want to implement this new service, and then I want to use this brand new technology or this completely new programming language. And then this is a situation that you as a leader might, you know, very easily face. And then if you go to the team and tell them, you know what, this is not going to happen because this is not according to the company policy. You are smashing them down. You are basically killing their autonomy. They will feel this hard hearted. They will feel disengaged. They will feel that they are overruled. On the other hand, if you tell them, you know what, you can do whatever you want, then maybe in the short term, you will make one team happy, but then this will potentially create a big problem for the company. But as a leader, if you ask the team to consider a different set of inputs, if you phrase the question and will be, please take this decision considering what is the best interest of the company. Please make this decision in the best interest of uh, the, the full organization of your colleagues. Then you will most likely see how magic happens because the team is basically taking into consideration different inputs. And then it's basically getting out of the team bubble and taking in more inputs in order to make a more informed decisions. What I saw happening in my experience is either things like, you know what, the team, the team actually answering, you know what, based on all these parameters, this our initial solution doesn't work. It will be too costly for our company. 
But then I also saw other teams actually having a way more creative solution, something like we really believe that this new program language will work and then we want to make it work. But then we thought that if we just create some boundaries around our service, then we would not harm anyone else. And then this is exactly what we want to get. We want to, without freedom, there is no autonomy, there is no creativity, there is no room for innovation. Yeah. I I agree. We lost you there uh, a little bit, but that was just a few seconds. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I have uh, two reflections on that and I, I uh, very much agree with you. I mean, it's, it's like two things like, uh, first of all, try to communicate to the teams, like uh, where we are going, not how we should get there. Uh, that, that is up to the teams to decide and, uh, because they have the knowledge, uh, and, uh, and then try to set some cadence on, uh, uh you know, some, some, or not milestones, but at least a, a set cadence for when to sort of align on ensuring that people are, or the teams are moving in the right directions, uh, to kind of steer fr from that uh, perspective, uh, but, uh, stay away from being too digital, how to get there more like where the target is. And then I kind of agree with what you said, uh, with, uh, sort of making the teams or the individuals put themselves in the shoes of, uh, sort of the, the leader or even the sort of the CEO. I, I, I sometimes ask, uh, my staff, uh, when they uh, are about to take a decision, which might be good for the team perspective, uh, or, uh, from a team autonomous perspective. Uh, but perhaps not for the greater good of the company or the greater good of, of the user base or, or other teams like, but if you were sort of, if you were the CEO, or if you had the mandate to decide everything, uh, in all aspects of the company, what decision would you then take? Because sometimes also individuals in teams need to realize that there could be uh, conflicting agendas or, or that they have to step back for the greater good of things and so forth. And, and, uh, that is a decision, which is hard to take. And sometimes you have to, you know, step back a bit or take another route because it will kind of lead to the greater good of things. Uh, so, so that, that is something I try to do sometimes. Yeah. I don't know if there is time for adding, uh, some, something on it, but this is such an interesting topic, <laughs> you know. Uh, no, I was uh, just thinking that, of course, it's actually, I, I can just second uh, also your reflection, what you just said. Uh, the other reflection that I would like to make on my hand is that once you let the team, you know, take their own decision and then coming up with something different, you are basically moving from, uh, you know, you're allowing the team to experiment and then this experiment can be, let's say, the new default. So you know the difference between an organization when there is a standard and the default approach. We want to go not for a standard approach because otherwise people will keep doing whatever is being said. We follow the procedure. Going for a default approach is do take this decision based on the constraint, on the boundaries. And once you come up with a good decision, something that someone else can be reused, this will be the new default. And then this will be something that other teams can actually apply. And then this is again where innovation uh, starts. Uh, and then also this feedback loop is extremely important. I totally agree, uh, totally agree with you. This doesn't work if there is no way for the team to understand 
if this decision is going the right direction or to get feedback and then learn from those people. Yeah, I, I also have some inputs on that. I mean, uh, you know, when you ask, depending upon uh, what person in the team is uh, making the decision and, you know, uh, having a sort of self-leadership approach uh, in decision-making, it's very important that that person also has like a full picture or like, you know, all the information before taking any uh, decision. And usually, I mean, for example, if it's a developer, uh, they are they are not maybe part of, you know, those stakeholder communications, but maybe, for example, a manager or an architect is, is involved in those kind of decisions. So uh, it is it is also very important that uh, the whole team is part and is given full knowledge before they, you know, uh, start like uh, making any decision or like, you know, there is any sort of planning in, in progress uh, before knowing the full picture, I would say. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. And, and that is also, of course, part of the challenge, like, because when, when, when communicating sort of where the target is and, and sort of the context and many of those things, it's, uh, it's easy that it's hard to find the balance there as well. You want to communicate it all, but of course, for many developers, it's uh, you don't want to spend too much time on that either, because quite frankly, many of them they they don't have that time and they don't want to know everything about the context. Uh, but then again, you have to provide them with with enough uh, of, of context in order for them to understand sort of uh, where where we're going or sort of uh, how how. Uh, you know, for them to understand or come up with how to get there. And uh, so, so I, I agree with you. It's, it's important to have them on board in that and be transparent. Uh, otherwise, it will be hard uh, for team members themselves to kind of uh, uh, take those decisions. But it's a balance on how much time you want to spend on, on the different things, because then again, you want them to be autonomous and, and spend much of the time on their core things. Nice. I think um, something I kind of resonated with there is definitely what you said, David, about if you were the CEO, if you were the owner of this company, I imagine those kind of conversations allow your team to, to kind of feel important and feel respected and valued as well. Um, so no, love that. Really, really nice topic to start this podcast off with. Um, and we'll go to our second question now. Um, and Mauro, that was yours, which is based on your experience, what are the most common pitfalls to avoid when scaling the company? And then and more importantly, how do you avoid them? Yeah, uh, just a bit of a background for this question. So uh, I have uh, always I mean, been reading uh, books or blog posts or even listening to podcasts where it's often described the journey of a company from you know, a group of people working in a garage, I mean, to become a unicorn. So these success stories are very inspiring. But then what I'm mainly interested in is to understand real life experience. So something that you have to leave yourself, some problems or mistakes that you or the organization you have worked for uh, have done. And also how did you manage actually to overcome those problems? Because those are the learnings that I'm looking for and then I really want to take back home. So this is the background for this question. So if I uh, uh, want to start, the, uh, I, I mean, thought in a different dimension. Let's put it like this. So the first, the first pitfall that I uh, came up with is uh, from the leaders to assume that the culture can be changed or forged just based on a few sentences on a super fancy 
uh, slide deck or based on uh, flyers that you can put in the uh, kitchen area or posters close to the coffee machine. Uh, this is uh, a big pitfall, I believe. And then I'm not saying that this is not important to try to verbalize your culture, to try to describe through values and principles how 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 that the company that you are working in uh, should 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 be right how you want to be able to interact and behave but in the end of the day culture is very well described not by these words but by the stories that employees will tell to each other when management is not around so the stories tell the employees will tell their friends will tell their family about what they see in the office about, about what they see how they see their colleagues or the leaders uh, behave. This is about the best description of the culture. And then as a leader, you want to change these stories. And since the stories are not fictional stories, but then they are real life episodes, the most important thing, and then this is how to avoid this pitfall, from a leader perspective, is to really be consistent with those principles, to be a role model, to lead those principles, and then to act actually in the way you have uh, uh, described uh, uh, your culture in the slide. And this will create the stories that your people will uh, talk about. This is the first pitfall, and then this is the first kind of uh, recipe for avoiding this pitfall. Uh, the second one is also something that I experienced myself. Uh, when you move from a very chaotic environment, like a startup environment, of course, everything is kind of messy, but efficient at the same time. It is just a bunch of people, uh, maybe just founders or someone else. Uh, but then as the company grows, you tend to, of course, I try to, to, to create some boundaries to put some strain and constraint to this chaos because you want to create some procedures, some processes. And then this is also fine. The bigger risk here is to do is to overdo is to try to over-systematize, to try to over-engineer the organization, because if you try to put processes, procedures, and routines for basically everything, then again, we are falling back in what we discussed before. We are limiting team's autonomy, team's freedom, and then we are killing the, uh, creativity and, and innovation. So again, maybe in this case, how to avoid this pitfall is a little bit less concrete, but then I would suggest to always try to understand and try to strike the balance between what is really needed from a process perspective and then what you can just leave without. Uh, in the end of the day, you want to have teams which are capable of making the, and individuals which are capable of making the decisions in absence of rules and procedures because you have built around them the right culture and the right constraint. But this is the second one. I would just mention a third one, which is a little bit more concrete. Uh, this is about onboarding. So I've worked for companies in a hybrid growth phase. And then I've uh, seen a lot of attention from management only on uh, trying to grow as much as possible, as quick as possible. And the only metric that we were basically looking at is how many people we managed to recruit. But then the biggest problem is that what happens when those people start? What happens day one? What happens day 30, the first month? How do you manage to get those people up and running? How to manage to get them as productive as possible? How to manage to get them journey, the initial journey as smooth as possible? How to manage to not actually overload 
their teammates with a lot of questions, a lot of uh, uh, you know time spent for helping the newcomers grow. Uh, here, that the, the, the trick is again without overdoing, but then start thinking at your onboarding phase as soon as you start, as you decide that you want to grow, and then you can just start very small, just taking. Uh, uh, a few engineers and then talking to the engineers and then understanding together with them, which is the best way to make a newcomer productive in the best possible way and then in the fast possible way. And then while the company is growing, maybe enriching and enhancing this onboarding process along the way. Uh, so just to, to, to summarize, culture, uh, over-engineering and onboarding, those are the three results that I, I, I've seen myself. What about yours? Yeah, I think um, I can I can just say this question is um, uh, I, I can talk about it for hours. Uh, being in the situation uh, where uh, being part of an organization which is uh, which is no longer a startup but it's a scale up and uh, things are happening very very fast and uh, you know sometimes um, like you mentioned that we are hiring more and more and more people but. Uh, what happens when they start, uh, for example, onboarding. And I think uh, the most common uh, pitfall, I would say, uh, including onboarding and, you know, also offboarding the staff members and things like that, I think it's bringing structure in the company, but also striking a balance between overcomplicating those structures where, you know, you have 100 documents for each and everything and having no documentation or no procedure or set uh, rules for anything. And that's where, uh, personally, in the in the company that I'm working right now, uh, where we strike to uh, try to gain a balance between those things, where you bring in, you know, rather a system uh, which is like an HR portal, where you know you can get all the documentation that you need for a person to start as a part of onboarding, and also kind of like uh, a manager or a leader of a new joining has uh, details. A detailed set of uh, instructions how the first day should be and maybe for example if you're onboarding like a developer uh, maybe opening the code on the very first day might be fun for the developer but also making them understand that you know why where they are like what company goals are values are those kind of soft onboarding and you know soft skills skills about the company is equally important but usually when you uh, talk about a startup or a scale-up situation these parameters are sort of lost or not given that much importance um, but having a set uh, I would say a portal or even a software which could help with you know these kind of steps is a great start which is something we implemented recently so this is uh, this has been a great challenge but also a good solution which has helped us out yeah and uh, I, I agree with what you're saying and 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 myself coming from uh, Epidemic Sound, which is all about storytelling. It's about uh, providing sort of music to storytellers out there. So uh, I think we're good at pushing that internally as well in terms of telling the story, how it was fund founded, how it uh, going from startup to scale up uh, and so forth. And that, that's an important thing. And, and I have the same experience from my previous time taking great part in the uh, in the consolidation of Bisnode, uh, which was uh, when I joined uh, seven di different uh, companies in, in Europe that we consolidated throughout the years into one uh, European 
a company uh, building sort of uh, services, products and services on the same platform. So, so that was a massive sort of uh, merger, uh, to be honest, uh, in, in all dimensions. And, and, and in both these two cases, it's been quite important with the storytelling, like telling the history, what have happened, how come we are what we are, because that kind of gives people an understanding on if you have a story as a, as a startup going to scale up, I mean, then because of the story, things will be a bit messy. And it was the same thing with with Vista. We were 70 independent companies with 3,600 people that were merged into one company. And of course, that sort of systems and processes and so forth will be messy. Uh, and uh, step by step, we kind of uh, dealt with that and made it into a very successful uh, company. But it's kind of by telling these kind of stories. And I mean, that's why we all learn history at school, because if you don't know the story, it's hard to understand why things are the way they are and how to act on that to kind of change things uh, for the future. Uh, so I, I think that kind of storytelling uh, is not about sort of being stuck in the past. Uh, it's actually on the contrary. You just need to understand the history in order to, you know, to, to change and, and move forward. And it's like, you should be proud of the story or at least tell the story, uh, but then, uh, you know, to uh, to understand how to act to become successful going forward uh, and to change things. And I agree with, with sort of processes and stuff like that. Over-engineering, it's, uh, it's a bit of a trade-off as well. I mean, I think there are things in companies uh, that people just want to have uh, a, a bit structured and, and you don't, you don't have to tell people uh, how to do things, but quite often people are kind of happy just to have a bit of a cadence to, to know like, okay, now we have the monthly uh, reviews. Now we have the OKRs. Now we have all of these things. And and because people want to have something to lean into. So people know when to book specific meetings or do specific things. And as long as you have a, a set cadence, you don't have to decide the details uh, on what to do in between. And, and I think also, I'm 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 a big fan of sort of the sharing is caring mentality, and if you share a lot of things and have most things very available, uh, people can use sort of examples, uh, sort of good examples, best practices uh, as a foundation when when doing their work, uh, and then some of course processes or you know models they could be documented because you know people just want to know like how do we go about it here. And, and spend a reasonable amount of time on that. Uh, and that could, you know, be facilitated if, if you have like a product ops department to people or, or you know, just sort of product and tech people that, that care a lot about sort of uh, knowledge management and those sort of things. Uh, and because that could actually facilitate scaling faster and so forth. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it should always, you know, I mean, processes and, and uh, best practice and, and models and examples they're good, but they, of course, they should not be forced to people too hard uh, because that does not make sense. It, it should, should always be uh, uh, for the greater interest of the teams and the individuals themselves. Otherwise, should not be used. So agreed on that. Yeah, yeah. I guess a good practice uh, could be that every now and then, let's say that you had set your uh, fair amount of processes, procedures, and routines. A good practice would be to ask yourselves again, why uh, do these processes exist? And then yeah. why are they for? And then which kind of value are those processes and 
procedures providing because sometimes we just get stuck into how things have been done for years and then we stop questioning. And then I'm not saying that this always happens, but I'm just saying that it is good to, you know, sometimes uh, uh, unplug and ask ourselves, is this is the right uh, thing to do at that point in time? Uh, and then again, it is very tough, uh, really, to strike this balance. I mean, this is also why sometimes the, the, the leadership roles are so complicated because there is no single truth. And then this is very based on the context. Sometimes the situation is kind of requiring a little bit more of uh, uh, processes and procedures. Some of the time, the situation is requires a completely different approach. Yeah. But I think also, like you said, when onboard, in the topic of onboarding, if there are some, you know, some knowledge management, some best practices, some documented, you know, the, the key processes and how to go about things and where to find things, well, that also makes onboarding so much easier because, uh, then you just po point people in the right direction to, to what already exists. And I think sometimes you, you don't need to set like, okay, this is our sort of model. This is our how to do things, but instead you can just, you know, have a few examples on how people already do it because, because typically people have their kind of own uh, sort of process documentation because they kind of lead, lead themselves or, or some product teams might have you know, a good process, how they do things or documentation. And then you just, you know, add that as an example, like th th this is a good example on how to do things. Please, please just copy with Steve with pride, because if you try to formulate too much into a bit of a template, it might be outdated, uh, you know, by the time it's well implemented, because then kind of the organization has changed. There are new sort of new ways of doing this. And, and there's rarely one size, uh, Fitting on. I mean, sometimes you have, you know, sometimes you have a lot of resources to run an initiative and, and all the different roles, and you can do it really by the book. But quite often, it's much more messy than that, and you have to do with the, you know, work with whatever you have. Uh, and then, if you set like a, a process where you should follow too many steps or do too many iterations of some things, that might not be how the world works or you don't might have that, those resources and time for that specific initiative. Nice. I think um, some quite interesting pieces of advice there. Um, and I think listening to kind of the underlying commonalities is there isn't a, a solution for every single situation, but definitely good advice to, to be sharing. Um, and now our final topic, which is quite a nice one to round the the subtopics that we mentioned before um Abney, it's your topic of how does leadership evolve in a company when growing from startup to scale up so yeah tell us more yes um <clears throat> bit of a background about this topic uh leadership which which is sort of a word we keep uh you know discussing or throwing around in the different teams different organization and uh I want to know from this panel as well, like how does it leadership or a specific leader uh, changes or what type of strategies or, uh, you know, way of working or their skill set should grow with a company, which is also growing. And this could be from startup to scale up uh, an example, or this could be a company which is, you know, has like a 20 employees, but has uh, grown up to 40 or 120. Uh, and, uh, you know, a leader, which is a vital part of this uh, organization, also has to evolve in terms of, you know, 
resources and coming up with uh, different ways of leading the team and, you know, making sure that the team morale is always high um, and uh, people are focused and they know what to do. So those side of, so, uh, sort of leadership uh, tips, that's what I'm trying to gain uh, from this topic. Uh, bit of my insight from this is uh, I've seen different leaders uh, from varying from their experiences and also from the uh, organizations where they work uh, in. Let's say, for example, if you're working in an uh, organization where you're building trucks and so on, the leadership strategy also changes, whereas you're working in a more digital organization where, you know, uh, it's an e-commerce and so on. The leadership style also varies. And uh, when a company is uh, small, where they are trying to have more self-leadership uh, being put onto the team, where everyone should feel like, you know, they have some sort of, uh, you know, accountability on the things that they do and the work that they do. So pushing the self-leadership part. But whereas some uh, organizations have sort of dependencies with their managers or leaders when they uh, work, where, for example, if the leader is, uh, you know, not available or is on vacation, the team sort of goes into not wrong direction, but like the pace of work slows down. So uh, it is quite interesting from all the years I've seen like different leadership styles and also um, how uh, companies promote leadership in general while they are growing up or, you know, while they're, if it's a big organization. So, okay. Uh, I yeah just my question is like uh from your experiences how does leadership evolve yeah uh this is also super interesting uh, question so uh thank you for uh, uh for it so i was uh, uh thinking at a few dimension when i thought about how the leadership evolves uh the first dimension popping up in my mind was a little bit this uh, kind of construct between uh, being operational and being strategic so as the company grows, I mean, leaders, of course, which used to be in a startup environment, very operational, I mean, doing basically everything themselves, wear multiple hats, they they are forced actually to work on a different level, which is a little bit more abstract level. And then sometimes this is easy for the leaders, sometimes it's very tough, but then this is a step which is very much required. And then what I mean with the working on a more strategic level it is also, you know, when a, when a company grows, it is more and more important to have a vision, to have, uh, to understand which are the different, let's call it focus areas, where to focus on, uh, what to do, what not to do, uh, which are the metrics to optimize for, which are the short-term and long-term goals. So those are things that leaders need to understand how to deal with, with right? Because the most important, I mean, for me, it is important to understand and then that leaders should understand that if they don't do that, no one else will. If they, you know, don't do operational work, there will be always someone else doing operational work. But then if they skip this kind of high level tasks, no one else will. And then other than this, uh, you know, growing a strategic mindset, I, uh, you know, going back to this culture, values, principle, acting as a role model, storytelling. This is also something which is part of a, the leader responsibility. And then it becomes more and more important as the company, the company grows. And since the company is such while growing, it is a big system and it's also a big complex system. 
leaders need to understand how to deal with the complex system, which are actually different from complicated system. So handle a complex system requires iteration, requires experimentation, experimentation requires you know, learning, requires understanding how to do, what to do to improve the situation. And last but not least, I would also mention that those leaders, while the company is growing, need to be kind of true to themselves. Sometimes leaders are able to grow and then to nurture and then to develop the skills which are needed for the company. Some other times this is not happening or many different reasons. Those leaders need to be true to themselves and understand if there is and when and if there's the moment to step aside or step back and let someone else maybe lead in the, step, take the lead of the company, someone which is more equipped with the needed skills. Yeah, I think it, it's, uh, for, for me, uh, it's not about uh, having respect for, for different roles and uh, different uh, areas of responsibilities. Uh, I When I joined a, a startup a, a few years ago called Defentry, uh, which do uh, uh, co- consumer B2B to C uh, uh, consumer anti-fraud solution. And uh, they were a couple of really successful, uh, great entrepreneurs that hired me. And they were super clear when I joined that we, we want to focus on this sort of develop the company and sales and so forth. And we want you to, to do a focus on the product and tech side. Uh, and uh, I've heard so many stories about sort of entrepreneurs and owners of company that, you know, still hiring people, but still wanted to run everything and make all the decisions. Uh, but, but these, uh, these two people, they were super respectful. And also uh, when we worked together, we had sort of our different areas. We supported each other in the different areas, but it was very much respectful on sort of our different roles. And and that I, I highly appreciate it. And I think it's, uh, I think that's the way to, to run the startup. And when you're going, uh, stay where, to a scale up mode. And, and I often think about that in my own work, because uh, uh, you have to sort of respect the different departments. I mean, I'm, I'm in product now. You have to respect sort of uh, what, what the tech people say about things, what the UX people say about things, so sales and marketing. I mean, you should always challenge each other and, and try to, you know, uh, yeah, just challenges other on, on decisions, but still, uh, having a respect for, for what your role is and, uh, who would take, have the final call on things and then, then, uh, try to support each other in that. Uh, and I think that's uh, a very important thing. And it, it comes back to sort of the, our discussion on, on alignment versus, uh, autonomy. I mean, if you want to have autonomous team, you also have to respect sort of their decisions and, and their decisions on how they want to go forward with things. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot about sort of respect for different roles and, and the capabilities because no one knows everything. It's, it's like a, a teamwork of things and then try to be supportive of one another, even if you sometimes disagree with, with the decision. Yeah, exactly. And I think like. Uh, switching the focus, especially when you're a leader uh, and, you know, steering the ship in the right direction is very important because uh, priorities sometimes do change, uh, even in the biggest or smallest organizations or teams. And, uh, you know, a leader should have that kind of a, a multitasking and a, a quick uh, reactive uh, approach where, you know, you can switch to another thing and then 
serve the direction, but also keeping and respecting team members where they are on the same page uh, when something changes or, you know, uh, when you're prioritizing something else. Uh, I think uh, that's very important, especially in a growing company. Yeah. And I think uh, if you want to scale something, I mean, since, since, I mean, we're scaling a company is such a huge team uh, work effort. Uh, you must be prepared to leave a lot of decisions to someone else. And you make some decisions yourself, but you have to be prepared to leave many other many decisions to others and, and live with that kind of uncertainty that it means. Otherwise, things will not move fast enough and it will not scale. So you have to have a lot of trust in that and, and be, of course, supportive of each other. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Has anybody got any final um, kind of comments on any of the topics we mentioned? No? No, let's guess that it was uh, very fun uh, to have this conversation and that super interesting topic and then super interesting obedience. So thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely been some really good piece of advice in there um, for, for the listeners. And I mean, I just want to take this opportunity now before we finish the recording to just say thank you to Mauro, David and Adney to for giving their inputs for joining us this evening. Um, and I'm sure everyone listening will really enjoy it as well.